Well, today is Pentecost Sunday, right? For some of you, you're like, I know exactly what that is. I grew up in a tradition that celebrated that. Uh, For some of you, you're like, what? Uh, What are we talking about? Uh, Pentecost, of course, falls 10 days after the ascension of Christ, the day that that Jesus ascended into heaven after his resurrection, 50 days after the resurrection of Christ, and and that's where it's marked on the church calendar, and so that's why it's today. Uh, And and today's that day, right? Pentecost, depending on your background, may or may not be something you're super familiar with, but it's a very significant day in the capital C universal Catholic church's history. When I say Catholic, I don't mean Roman Catholicism. Catholic means universal. That's what the word actually means, and they just kind of stole it uh, and kept it for themselves. But, but it actually means the universal church, right? And this is a significant day for the capital C universal church. After all, the day of Pentecost really is the birthday of the church. It's the inauguration of the church. There is no church before the day of Pentecost. That's where the, Jesus sends the prom, he fulfills his promise. He sends the Holy Spirit to empower and equip the church to take the gospel to the world right? and, and send us on the mission that he has for us. It's the day that we were inaugurated. His disciples sent, were sent and the Spirit poured out upon them, uh, empowering them to take the gospel. In celebrating Pentecost, we're remembering and giving thanks for the faithfulness of Jesus, that he keeps his promises. He fulfills his promise as he fulfilled his promise in sending the Holy Spirit. We also celebrate the work of the Holy Spirit in renewing all things. That that the same Spirit that rose Jesus from the grave dwells within us as believers and is at work right now, continuing day by day to renew us and and to renew all things. A, A work that has been underway since that very first Pentecost and will be carried on to completion on the day that Christ returns and glory. And we also profess faith and confidence that the same Spirit that rose Jesus from the grave is present within us, at work within us, empowering us with spiritual gifts to use, to bless and build up the church, to, to empower the mission of the church, supplying us with His power for, for the mission of taking the gospel to the people around us. This is a very significant day in the history of the church and and, in the flow of the church calendar, a day that we as Christians should probably mark and celebrate more than we we do. But it's a very fitting day also for our second beatitude, where Jesus promises that those who mourn will be comforted, for it it is, after all, the Holy Spirit who delivers and enables us to experience that promised comfort as we press into Jesus. But let's take a look at our, our text today, uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 4. I invite you to turn there in your Bibles, and let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. Should be, blessed are those who mourn, Matthew 5, 4. There you go. Uh, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. This is the Word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are are so grateful to gather together today, so grateful for your Son who spoke these words, who promises to comfort those who mourn, who promises to send the Holy Spirit to those who follow Him and know Him. And Lord, we, we, we delight in the reality that, Jesus, you keep your promises. And we pray that you would help us today 
with such a, a strange verse of Scripture. Blessed are those who mourn. Help us to see the beautiful truth of that. That it, that it is only in mourning that we are able to truly find the joy and comfort that we need and long for. And teach us, Lord, by your Spirit. Empower us to be people who mourn and who are comforted in Christ. We pray in his name. And all of God's people said, amen. You may have a seat. Blessed are those who mourn. Literally, in the Greek, happy are those who mourn. Think about what those words are saying. Happy are those who mourn. How? Like, how does that even make sense? Happy are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. This is another beatitude that that stands out at, at once and clearly distinguishes the Christian from the world. Because, I mean, those words, like, think about how ridiculous that sounds. Happy are those who mourn. Because anyone else in the world, anyone else in the world other than a Christian, those words sound like utter nonsense. How is that possible? Right? For those who mourn, to be happy, to be blessed, how, how does that make sense? How can they be happy? How can we be happy while mourning? After all, the reality is, is that we as human beings, we do not like to mourn. We don't like to mourn. We don't. In fact, the world sees mourning as something to avoid at all costs. The world's motto is, forget your troubles. Forget your troubles. Do everything you can do not to face them. That's why we fill our lives with screens and entertainment. And we just numb ourselves with show after show after show, binge watching. Because we, we want a distraction from the realities and the pains of our life. That's why it was particularly painful for so many of us as this pandemic began and we went months without basketball or baseball or any ball, uh, right? We, we got the last dance. That was like a, our saving grace. Uh, but but, we, but we, it was just so painful because why? Because sports provide such a wonderful distraction, you know, even this, this nation, the world wars, baseball, you know, help carry the nation through because it provides this little outlet to just forget about the troubles of the world, the troubles of your life, and just check out for a few hours and enjoy something else. We need, we need some sort of outlet all the time. Anything else instead of the hardships and the griefs that we're dealing with. The world does all that it can to avoid mourning. And look at how there are less and less funerals and more and more celebrations of life, right, at the end of someone's life. We don't even call them funerals. It's a celebration of life. And, you know, I was kind of curious myself, like, what's the distinction? What's the difference between a funeral and a celebration of life? How does somebody, like, kind of distinguish the difference about that? So I I did a little research on this thing called Google, and uh, I found uh, found an article that really kind of struck me. Here's some direct quotes from that article. A celebration of life is an alternative to a funeral. When you attend a celebration of someone's life, you you should expect to experience a joyful event. As the name implies, you're there to celebrate rather than mourn. The event may appear to be more of a party than something commemorating the person's death. 
The celebration of life is not generally held in a funeral home or a church. It is more often in someone's home or an outdoor venue, such as a garden or park. It's held after the burial or cremation of the deceased. Those are kind of direct quotes from that article, but, but you can see in the subtle and not so subtle efforts uh, to, in every way, remove the reality of death and the reality of mourning from our faces, to just hide it, to just take it away, right? Let, let's hurry up and let get, let's get that person buried or cremated so that death can be removed from our faces and we don't have to encounter it any longer. Let's do away with anything spiritual that focuses on the spiritual realities associated with physical death. Let's just have a cookout and share stories. But only if it's joyful, only if it's celebratory. Let's give it some time if we have to. Right? Maybe we'll wait a few weeks or we'll wait a few months or maybe even a year before we have the event so we can push past the grief we can push past the morning. You can just be joyful. Right? Just be a party. And maybe some of that's not completely fair, but that's kind of how this article read when, as I read it in its entirety. It was very much just saying that, like, yeah, you might want to wait a year so that it can be a good time. And it goes hand in hand with the attitude of our world that wants to avoid grief, wants to avoid mourning and death at all costs. But friends, despite our best efforts, the reality is, is that we all encounter death and loss and grief and mourning, whether we want to or not. It, it, it comes for all of us. We all face it. Tomorrow will mark the two-year anniversary since one of my dearest friends was killed in a car accident. A year ago this month, just one year ago this month. Crystal's best friend in, from college who helped lead her to the Lord died from a battle with cancer that she didn't even know she had for, until less than two months before that. The reality is that for both of us, there is very few days, basically no days, where at some point we're not encountered or we're not thinking about those dear friends. You know, I hear my friend and even some of the things that I say as I preach because of his impact on my life. Things that sound like what he would say. And as painful as those losses were for us, the reality is that both of those friends were also spouses and parents. And so uh, even closer relationships forever changed by their parting from this world. Death and grief are part of the human experience for every single one of us. You, know, you all have your stories. There are losses that we have walked through this year in so many of our lives around this room. And so much as the world would like, and, and we would like to avoid mourning, as much as we dislike it and we want to distract ourselves from it, it is inevitable for all of us. But we are not the only ones who mourn. Jesus also mourns. He also mourns. Hey, if you've never memorized a verse of Scripture in your life, i got a great one for you to start with. Two words, right? John 11.35, Jesus wept. Jesus wept. He wept. 
It's kind of silly that it's a short, easy verse to memorize, but the meaning of that verse is profound. After all, the context of John 11, you know, Jesus is, is, is at the, the, the tomb, the grave of his dear friend Lazarus, who just died three days ago. And at the tomb, Jesus wept. Jesus wept. He mourned. Jesus wept over Jerusalem as he approached the city on his way to his cross at the end of his ministry, the end of his earthly life. Luke 19, 41. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. Jesus mourned. He didn't try to avoid it. He didn't try to distract himself from it with something else. But he actually leaned into it and he mourned. But how can we be happy about mourning? Like, how does that make sense still? Like, blessed, happy are those who mourn. How? How is that possible? What can that mean? Blessed are those who mourn. It most certainly does not mean that we should be happy to mourn about the death of our loved ones. It doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean that we're supposed to put on fake smiles like so many times we think the Christian life is meant to be, right? You've got to put on a fake smile. You've got you to be joyful all the time. It doesn't mean that we're supposed to put on fake smiles and say everything's great when in reality at the moment our, our lives and our worlds are falling apart. That's not what it means to be happy or those who mourn. When you face death and grief and you are mourning, you are not happy. You are not happy. So what is Jesus talking about? Well, we must understand that the mourning he's speaking of here is a spiritual mourning. In the same way that being poor in spirit is not a reference to the balance in your bank account, right? the mourning Jesus is talking about here is, is entirely spiritual. It's entirely spiritual, and in one sense it has nothing to do with our natural life in this world. As you dig deeper into the Beatitudes, each of these Beatitudes, you find that all of them, they're referencing spiritual conditions and attitudes. So, this, so it is that those who mourn in, in spirit that Jesus says are hashtag blessed, right? They're the ones who are happy. And there's a specific type of spiritual mourning that, that Jesus has in mind that he's speaking of here. He's talking about mourning sin, Mourning sin. And that makes a lot of sense as you start to think about why it was that Jesus wept at Lazarus' tomb. Right? Do you, you remember the account, the story of Lazarus? If you don't, I'm going I'm to share it with you. But Jesus has given word while Lazarus is, is sick from his sisters, Mary and Martha, right? Come, and he needs you. You come and heal him, right? And Jesus waits. We're told, so that his glory may be revealed. He waits, and Lazarus dies. And in fact, by the time Jesus actually gets to Lazarus, he's been dead for three days. And he comes to the tomb, and Jesus wept. But what is Jesus there to do? He, he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. He's going to heal him and restore his life. He's moments away from calling him to walk out of the tomb and restoring his life. He knows that he's about to do that. So why does Jesus weep at the tomb? 
Jesus is not like us. He's not there at the tomb, and there's nothing he can do about Lazarus' death. In fact, he, he can do something about it, and he knows he's going to do something about it, and he's going to walk out. So why is Jesus weeping at his tomb? It's not because Lazarus is gone for good from this world. He weeps over the reality of death. And why is death a reality? Because of sin. Jesus is weeping, mourning sin and the effects of sin at the tomb of Lazarus. He's grieving that the world is broken because of sin and that because of sin, death exists. And because death exists, it brings and causes great grief and mourning to all of us. Great pain and loss for all of us. Jesus mourns the sin and the brokenness of this world. It's the same thing in Luke 19 when he weeps over Jerusalem. He weeps because of the brokenness caused by sin. He weeps because of sin that, that, that blinds Jerusalem from seeing Jesus for who he truly is and embracing him. Instead, they crucify him. He weeps over the destruction that sin will bring upon Jerusalem in the future. Jesus mourns sin. He mourns the brokenness of this world that is marred with sin. And so it must be with you and me. What sets the Christian apart from the world is that, that we mourn our own sin. And that we mourn the reality of living in a world marred by sin. We mourn that. If you don't, you're not a believer in Christ. Because you have to mourn your sin before you can know Jesus. The Christian is the person who cries out with the Apostle Paul in Romans 7.24. Wretched man that I am, a wretched woman that I am, who will save me from this body of death? It's mourning, grieving that I am a sinful human being. And, and there's nothing that I can do about it. The Christian continues day by day to lament that battle with our sinful flesh and, and the war that's going on between our sinful flesh and the, the spirit of life that is also at work within us. Waging war. Right? You, you grieve the reality of Romans 7.15. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. That's the heart of a believer. That's the heart of the Apostle Paul as he speaks of his own battle against sin as a believer in Romans 7. The thing that I want to do that will bring glory to God, I don't do. And the sin that I hate, that I want to be free from, that's the thing I do. It's a mourning. It's a grieving. The Christian grieves the reality that though they long to live more and more for Jesus, they continue day by day, to struggle and fall into sin. But we need to understand the nature of mourning sin because mourning sin is different from simply enduring the shame of being caught in your sin. Now, you can be caught in your sin and then come to mourn your sin, absolutely. But not everyone who's caught mourns their sin. Right? The kid who gets caught with his hand in the cookie jar 10 times out of 10 is not mourning oh, I shouldn't have wanted this cookie that mom said I, I need to not have after I've already had 10, right? Um, 
They're not mourning that. They're mourning that they can't have the cookie, that they got caught. There's a difference between mourning your sin and mourning being caught. Mourning not getting what you want. Many of us get caught in our sin, but if we only feel the shame of being caught, that is, if you only really grieve and mourn the fact that you were caught, but you don't really grieve and mourn the sin that you were caught in, then you are not among the blessed ones who mourn that Jesus speaks of here. We have to mourn the sin. We have to grieve the sin itself. It's one thing to feel bad about being caught, but it's another thing to truly mourn that you would sin in that way in the first place. To mourn your sin is to hate your sin. To hate that you would do that. To hate that your your flesh drives you in that way. It's to agree with the Apostle Paul, I don't understand my own actions. I do the very thing I hate, and I don't do the thing that I want to do, which is to obey and glorify God. Who will save me from this body of death? Does that describe you today? Or are you content to give in to your sin so long as it can stay hidden out of the world's eyes? To mourn your sin is to long to see it put to death. Whether you've been caught or not. To mourn your sin is to long to be free from sin completely. To long for that day when you will sin no more. To mourn your sin in the brokenness of this world is to, as Romans 8.23 discusses, to groan inwardly as you await eagerly the redemption of your bodies and your full adoption as God's children. That's what it means to mourn your sin. The Apostle Paul captures the heart of mourning sin in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 2 and 4. He's speaking of living in these bodies. He calls our bodies a tent in these verses. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. It's a mourning of of just this flesh that leads me into temptation and leads me to sin in all these different ways. This longing to be fully clothed, fully covered by the perfect righteousness of Christ forevermore in in completeness. To just have his righteousness completely swallow up my sinfulness and take it away forever where I will sin no more, suffer no more. To mourn your sin in the brokenness of this world marred by sin is to long to be restored to a place where you will never sin again. It's to long for the world to be restored to a place where there is no more sin, no more war, no more suffering, no more death. Just joy and glory forever. When you encounter a perfectly holy God and you realize that you are meant to live a perfectly holy life and then you are faced with the fact that you have failed again and again and again to do just that and you're, you're faced with your utter hopelessness, your utter helplessness to ever make that right, that makes the believer mourn. The world will say, who cares? I'm going to live how I want to live. But the believer, faced with all that, 
mourns. They grieve. They groan inwardly to be made new, to be fully redeemed. You mourn the fact that you're a sinner who can do nothing to make yourself right with God. The Christian recognizes this war that's going on within yourself between the sin you hate, the good you long to do, and how often it is that you choose to do what you hate over what you long to do, and you mourn. But it goes further for the believer. For the Christian not only mourns their own sin, but they also mourn the sins of others. And again, there's a distinction, just like the kid with the, the hand in the cookie jar. There's a distinction of what is actually mourning the sins of the world and what is just actually just judging and hating the people of the world who sin. Right? It's not mourning to judge and hate others in a, in a like issuing condemnation kind of way. It's not mourning to simply be disgusted by the sins of the world. Not that sins shouldn't disgust us in some ways. But that's not mourning if we stop there. Jesus looks out at Jerusalem, not with disgust, but with compassion, with eyes of mercy, with a longing for Jerusalem to be redeemed and made whole, to have its eyes opened and awakened to truth and grace and glory and justice to be restored and our hearts are to be like his as we look out at this world filled with sin to have eyes of compassion eyes of mercy hearts that long to see Bloomington to see the world restored set free from the law of sin and death fully renewed and redeemed in every way to see shalom things as God intended them to be, be a reality. Christian mourns for the brokenness of the world and longs for people to know Jesus and find life in him. They groan for the world to be renewed and redeemed and set free from sin completely. That's what it means to mourn in the way that Jesus is speaking of here. But how is the one who mourns happy? How? Those who mourn their sin and the sins of the world are happy because they are on the road to finding comfort. Jesus says, happy are those who mourn. Like, that's the paradox. The question we're left with is, is how? How is that possible? The person who mourns their sin is a person who is about to repent. That's how. In fact, the person who mourns their sin is already repenting. That process has begun with that mourning of the sin. A person that the Holy Spirit leads to truly repent of their sin is a person who is being led to Jesus Christ. And in Jesus, despite their own hopelessness and helplessness to do anything about their sin, they find forgiveness. Grace upon grace upon grace. They find a gifted righteousness that they could never earn for themselves and they're clothed in it. They're covered in it. The person who mourns and repents finds a Savior in Jesus who takes their condemnation for their sin in their place. Jesus suffered it on his cross as he died there. Their debt paid in full. That's how those who mourn their sin can be happy because their sin is paid for in Christ. 
And so they find instead of that Jesus secures their adoption as children of God, he sets them free from the law of sin and death, giving them not only forgiveness for all of their sins, past, present, and future, but promising to one day deliver them fully and completely from sin forever. Do you believe that? Is that where your hope is at today? When Christ returns, you will be glorified Right? In a resurrected body, your soul and your body reunited together in a glorified resurrected body patterned after the resurrection body of Jesus himself. And you'll be ushered in to his kingdom and the fullness of it where there is no more sin, no more death, no more suffering. He will wipe every tear from our eyes. There will only be joy and glory forever. That's how those who mourn can be happy because they're finding that hope that I have already been forgiven and the day is coming when I will be set free completely and I will not have this battle going on within me anymore. I'll be at one with Christ, at one with his people in the fullness of his glory, in the fullness of his joy. That brings comfort. That's how those who mourn can be happy. They can be happy knowing that while here and now, We mourn our sin in Christ. We have been forgiven and will one day fully be set free. The one who mourns is happy because they cry out, as Paul does in Romans 7, who will deliver me from this body of death? And as Paul does in Romans 7, they can answer back, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's who. He's the one who delivers me from this body of death. He has and he will in fullness do that. That's the personal comfort. That's the personal joy that comes for the one who mourns. But there's actually even more. There's not only personal comfort to be found in Christ, but when he comes again in glory, he will renew and restore all things. This earth will be renewed and restored. We groan now over the brokenness of the world, but when he comes again, I love how the Jesus Storybook Bible says it, all the sad things will come untrue. All the sad things will come untrue. All things will be set right again, and there will be nothing left to mourn, ever. Sin, sickness, death will be no more. Every tear wiped from our eyes, there will only be joy. What a comfort that certain hope brings to the one who mourns. That means that this world of sin and death won't get the final word. And this is where it comes back full circle, where it's, it's not really about mourning in this present life, the realities of death. Jesus isn't mourning Lazarus' death as much as he's mourning sin at the grave of Lazarus. But it comes back full circle because it applies then to our mourning of the physical realities of death in this world. Because the world, this world of sin and death won't get the final word. That means that the inevitable grief and loss that is the human experience that we all walk through is not the final and ultimate reality. For the Christian, the funeral is not goodbye. It's so long, right? Until we meet again. And there will be glorious reunions awaiting those of us who are in Christ when Jesus brings the fullness of his kingdom. For those who mourn and find their comfort in Christ, death will not have the last word. That's how it makes sense to say happy are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. The question we are left with is this. 
The question for you, do you mourn your sin? Or do you only mourn when you get caught? Do you mourn the sin and the brokenness of this world? Or do you just shake your head in disgust? Do you have compassion and long for the world to be made new? Do you share the heart of Christ? Have you experienced his heart toward you in your sin? You see, Jesus not only mourned, he, he mourned to such an extent your sin that he willingly stepped in and suffered the penalty your sin deserved in your place. He stepped in and died. And he was raised in your place that you might find in him eternal comfort, eternal joy, even now as you grieve and mourn your failure to live for God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And Jesus is inviting us to see the reality of our sin. He's inviting you to see the reality of your sin today, to see the sinfulness and brokenness of this world, and to mourn, to grieve, to groan over it, to see your utter inability to do anything about it, and yet long for it to be set right, and to do that while you put all of your hope, all of your trust in Jesus who mourned over you, who mourned over your sin, who mourns over the sins of this world to the point that he came to do something about it. May you embrace mourning and find comfort and joy in Christ today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us to, to share your heart by your Spirit. And pour out your Spirit and, and enable us to see the reality of our sin and, and the brokenness of this world. And help us mourn. Help us to be a people who grieve. Help us to groan from the depths of our soul for forgiveness, for redemption, for, for life, and for this place, this world, to be made new in your grace. And by your Spirit, help us to see that we have all of that in the person and work of your Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus, help us to find the comfort that we long for, the comfort we desperately need in you. Enable us to live as people of, of true joy in the midst of our mourning. People who have hearts of compassion, who help others find life and hope and joy in you as well. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.